Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to investigate the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Tim, I think it's a good time to share some important information with our listeners. Here at Behavioral Grooves headquarters, we just had our global risk and compliance standards meetings, and I wanted to let the groovers know that just as in past years, we're meeting or exceeding all of our benchmarks. And because of that, I'm happy to announce there won't be any penalties or new restrictions added to our <laughs> slate of policies this year. Where the hell was this meeting and who was in it? And I can sure as hell tell you it didn't happen in Charlotte, where I live. Well, no, because it <laughs> happened here in Minneapolis, the real <laughs> Headquarters of BG, oh the original, the the the, the old school headquarters, right? Oh. Not this newfangled southern place that you're going into. And the meeting was a meeting of one, just me, because oh. we had to make sure that it was done right. All right. Okay. So, um, but I definitely went above and beyond in ensuring that we complied with our set of 57 standards of podcast integrity and 26 products, uh, production safety protocols and the 42 rules okay. of social oh. media sharing. And oh, the, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, you, what? <laughs> what? You don't want to hear all of the things I reviewed in our uh, global compliance and risk uh, standards meeting? I It's sounding a bit corporate here, <laughs> but my, my guess is... There is some reason for this madness. I mean, uh, announcement. Yeah, <laughs> there, there is. So our guest today is our good friend, fellow podcaster, and now author, Christian Hunt. Christian is the founder of Human Risk, a risk and compliance consultancy based in Munich and in London, as well as the host of a podcast and video channel. Human Risk specializes in engaging virtual audiences by delivering compelling content. Yeah, we've had the pleasure of recording and hanging out with Christian in London at Abbey Road Studios, where we talked about the risks and benefits of cheating. Uh, that was in episode 326. Okay, and we discussed uh, how to not outsource your critical thinking during the pandemic. Episode 122. And we covered the five principles of human risk, or in other words, the myths that humans cling to that don't help us do the things that we ought to do back in episode 86. I back in episode 86, that's right. Wow. So we have a history together with Mr. Christian Hunt here. And in this episode, we discuss Christian's first book, Humanizing Rules, Bringing Behavioral Science to Ethics and Compliance. And in this book, Christian combines the fundamentals of human behavior with behavioral science, with six great rules to guide your thinking, and a model called radar that will allow you to directly apply what you've learned in the book to the real world. Yeah, so true, Kurt. And, you know, I want to get back to this global risk and compliance meeting that you had with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) What's up with the no penalties or restrictions comment? (laughs) Well, Tim, many groovers listen because they want to apply behavioral science to their work. So getting insights from our guests on how to do that can be really helpful. And yes, I was being sarcastic about the risk and compliance stuff because those are the departments that initially come to mind when it comes to ideas of being compliant. So if you work in the area of risk management or compliance, then this conversation is for you. Uh, you know, and uh, yes, and the reality is that 
all companies have rules. Like business managers of all types want their employees to follow some kind of rules. So if you work in HR or marketing or procurement or health and safety, or, or maybe you're just a manager of a sales team that needs to fill out expense reports, that this conversation is for you as well. Well stated, Mr. Houlihan, well stated. And as is often the case, the insights that we find in one area of this world that we talk to people about can have an impact in another. So there you go. So with that, we ask you to sit back with a healthy dose of human rules and listen to our conversation with our dear friend, Christian Hunt. Christian Hunt, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. And you start off by lying right away. All right, here we go. <laughs> coffee or tea? So I think I said last time I was on the show, I think I said coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. Yeah. I'm going to stick with that. You're going to, okay. Okay, good. You're going to stick with, you're not going to change things up. You're not going to be. You're still, even after moving to Munich, you're still on the same routine. I'm still, you know, old habits die hard. All right. As a fellow podcaster, um, would you rather record a podcast in your home office or in the Abbey Road studios? I would prefer to record it in the Abbey Road studios with some guests that have come over especially for that. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much fun. Oh, my uh, God. We, sh we should have a whole episode just talking about how much fun it was to, to do that. All right. Uh, next speed round question. Uh, cutting a pizza, which is better? The pizza scissors or the pizza roller? I, I don't even know what that roller is. Scissors is the only way forward, Tim. <laughs> the you were pretty way. emphatic about that in the book, that, hey, it changed your life once you got the scissors. So what, what is it about the scissors that actually pizza scissors, folks, is like a, well, explain it. Is it a cult, really? Well, it's, it's something I came across in Italy, and, 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 and it kind of makes perfect sense, right? Because if you look at, you've got a pizza there, how do you, how do you enter? Oh, and we have these strange sort of cutting implements. And a pair, if you think about it, right, a pair of scissors is perfectly designed for cutting. It just, it just lends itself to it. And, and so I saw them at this, they do this in Naples, where they, they, they basically, you, you decide the size. So rather than you having to have a predetermined size of slice, right, you can pick as much as you want. And they use scissors to cut the piece, and then they weigh it. And so there's this, there's this sort of eat as much, you know, just get exactly the right portion for you. It's perfectely customized pizza. And so I've always loved this idea of scissors. And so um, it's, it's always grabbed me as something, which is why I wanted to put it in the book. But I've also, I've also had some human risk pizza scissors made because I went, I've, I've been like, I'm like, I'm going to get the ultimate pizza. So I found a scissor factory that does, does nothing but make scissors to make some pizza scissors for me. And so, so these are special scissors that what? are pizza scissors or just special scissors for you that you've designed and said, hey, I want these. Yeah. No, no, they made them. So I've, I've, I've had some human risk ones customized. So we may well, maybe I'll just give a pair of those away oh to some God. lucky people. Oh, maybe, okay. maybe we'll, we'll figure out a uh, kind of process to maybe give one of our listeners a, totally. a, a pair of human risk scissors. All right. Last speed round question, because we are always so speedy on these speed round questions. Should we design compliance processes for the good people or for the bad people? And we I use air quotes there for the people that are listening on the podcast. We, we should definitely design it for the good people because <gasps> if we design it for the bad people, we're going to get bad outcomes. <laughs> so tell us why that is. We're talking to Christian Hunt about his new book, Humanizing Rules. Why would we design rules for good people when aren't good people going to basically do the, the right thing all the time? 
Well, as you know, Tim, we're all we're all flawed in some way, shape, or form. We can all find ourselves on the wrong side of the law. We can all find ourselves being unethical. And one of the things that's interesting when you look at the way a lot of kind of compliance, ethics, rules, if you like, are set up, is that there's a presumption that what we're trying to do is to stop bad people from doing bad things. If only we could stop these bad people from doing the bad things, we'd be okay. But what's interesting about it is that many of the interventions that we put in place to try and stop these bad outcomes they rely on cooperation on the part of the people. So if, for example, you've got a training course to try and get people to, to know what it is they need to do, bad people aren't paying attention to training. Bad people aren't reading rules. And so if we want to engage people, and particularly where there's a qualitative element to what we need them to do, you need them to do it to a certain standard, or we need them to do it when we're not watching, then we need to work with people. And so if our focal point is basically saying to anybody that's going to a training program or coming across one of our rules, we don't trust you, they're going to respond in kind. And so what I say is, if we want to catch and stop the bad people, we need to put things in place to do that. We need monitoring. We need controls around that. But let's start on the focal point of, of accepting the fact the average person, particularly in an employment situation, the average person is not showing up to work to try and get things wrong. They're trying to show up to work to do the right thing. And so we just got to help them to do that. And if our focal point is on the bad people, what we do is we send a signal to the good people that we don't trust them. And they mm. naturally will respond in kind. It's interesting because I talk about this with my wife and anybody when we're out and we see something that you just like, there's a rule in place. And this isn't around employees, but just kind of consumers even or something that they say, there's a rule in place that you have to do this. And you go, that just seems outlandish or crazy. And then you go, yeah, but at one point, somebody had to, you know, do that stupid, like, you know, don't jump off the bridge, you know, into the crocodile infested waters, right? And you're going, why do you put a sign up there that says don't jump off the bridge? And I mean, that's just, but then you go, oh, yeah, there was that one bad apple at some point who did that. And that's, that's it. And so, I, I, and it kind of reminds me of what you're saying here is like, don't make those rules for those outliers, you know, figure out compliance as it works for the general population and the people who are trying to do the good things. Is that? Yeah. And and yeah. And look, I mean, there, there are going to be certain things where you say, we absolutely don't want to have this thing happening. You, right. you typically sort of matters of life and death, right? And and there we might, we might throw everything at it and go, we really just can't afford to have that happen. And, and so it might be matter of life. It might, might, might be something like, you know, customer data gets gets lost and sent all over the internet. We want to protect against that. Or we have certain outcomes that we just can't afford to have. And so we might we might put a lot of controls around that thing. But if we do that for every single aspect of our rules, if we treat every single risky situation as if it's definitively going to happen and every single person that might possibly do something dumb is going to do that, we're going to overload people. And we all laugh about things like, if you, if you think back to the, you know, the, the famous coffee cup, the McDonald's coffee cup, yeah. where, where, where basically somebody got some hot coffee, decided to drive with it sitting between their legs, and, and clearly that didn't end well. And so there was a whole legal case. And so now we have this warning that says, you know, make in, you know contain, caution contains hot liquid, right? Now, that in, in a way, I mean, that irritates me, but you can sort of go, that's, that's kind of harmless. But if we look at things like controls, things that stop people from doing things, tedious training courses that waste people's time, if we assume the worst in every single person, we're going to have to go and, and waste a ton of effort and energy in trying to stop things that are very, very unlikely to happen. And so I say, look, let's when we need to do that, when we absolutely need to stop something from happening, let's let's do that. But let's not start the default position mustn't be every single person is up to no good and we don't trust them. Because we know that when people don't trust us, 
we return that in kind. And I think as we look at some of the things that people can do wrong in organizations, we've got to rely on them to a certain extent. We can't control every aspect of it. We can all embarrass our own employers by doing things on social media. And so to a certain extent in the 21st century, when we look at the things that we're trying to control, we have to work with people. And so we have to have a degree of trust that they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. So what happens when your co-host embarrasses you on social media? What, 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 <laughs> what do you do then? Well, what you'll, you'll have noticed that I don't have tips? a, I don't have a co-host on my show for exactly those reasons, Kurt. So I've mitigated the risk by removing the possibility of that happening. Ah, thank um, you, Christian. I, good idea. Good idea. There you go. Kurt used the C word. He said compliance. Oh. And, and that's, uh, it is in the title of the book, bringing behavioral science to ethics and compliance, but you have a bit of a contentious relationship with the word. Uh, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what, how, I mean, we all have an idea what, about what compliance means and especially in the environments that we work in, but tell us about why you think it's important to have this discussion. Well, I just think it's awful. It's it, as a piece of branding, it's appalling, right? If you wanted to send a signal to people that you're a bureaucratic function, you would come up with a word like compliance, and then you would <laughs> then you'd add the suffix officer, right, to make it sound like a sort of jumped up little bureaucrat. You imagine a little uniform that goes with it, and so with, with I a hat. think, yeah, 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 I'll completely right in a clipboard, and 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 you've got the you've got the stereotype in your mind, and and I think it's just a terrible word. I mean, no kid grows up wanting to be a compliance officer, right? It's not It's not on that list of, you, you, you can't get a little Lego model. It's not generally in, in children's books. It's, it's not very exciting. And so when I look at, well, you know, what are those functions trying to do? Well, often they're trying to get people to do things in a way that's unnatural, right? So if we look at when do we have rules and regulations, the answer is it's to, it's to stop something that would otherwise be happening or to make something happen that wouldn't otherwise happen. And so as we look at that, you kind of think, well, if we're in the business of trying to influence people, it, it, it's not particularly great when it comes badge as compliance. Now, how do I know compliance is an appalling brand? Well, the answer is send someone an email with compliance update or compliance training on it, right? Nobody is going to go, <laughs> yay, I can't wait to read this, right? And so, so there's this awful thing. And so I just, I look at that and I just think it's not a helpful start point. All of that said, the beauty, the beauty about the, the negative, the awful, awful, awful framing that's there is that people have very low expectations. Mm. So you can use that to your advantage if you're in a compliance function. And I haven't come up with a better term, but I just think it literally, if we were trying to send a signal that we, we weren't the sort of place you'd want to go and have a conversation with, that we're not open and business friendly, you would pick a word like compliance. So in other words, if I wanted to have an easier job with a low bar, I could get into compliance and then any kind of thing I do is raised above that. I mean, halfway decent and they're like, going, oh, you're better than I thought. Therefore, <laughs> Well, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I say this having been a compliance officer, right? I, and again, it wasn't ever in my career plan. I was an accidental compliance officer. <laughs> And it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a fact, like it's a really, really interesting role. And, and it's, it's, you know, it, it, you're, you're dealing with lots of interesting issues. And particularly I was in banking, so you can imagine the sorts of challenges and situations you come across there. So it's a fascinating job. And I just think it's, it's, it's like, it could do with a little bit of help in terms of how it's presented to the world, because our natural tendency is to believe these people are not going to help me. Where these people are gonna, these people are gonna obstruct me from doing what it is I want to do. They're gonna, they're gonna have all these tedious rules. I'm gonna have to do some tedious training. Doesn't, doesn't fill us with joy. And so, as I look at it, I just kind of think I don't. I think it makes the world a little bit harder when you have branding that that makes you sound unapproachable. Well, and when you had this job and you had the clipboard and the hat and the uniform <laughs> and in the bank and everything, did did the role 
influence or inform you in terms of how you're going to approach the job? I mean, did you think about your job as looking for the outliers that you're going to punish to some degree? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a really unusual experience and unusual in the sense of not many people do it, but also unusual in the sense that in many countries you can't do what I did. And that is that I was at the regulator and I was hired post the 2008 crisis. They were looking for people to join the regulator who weren't natural regulators. They'd recognized that they needed some, some fresh blood, for want of a better phrase. And I'd, I'd worked in the banking industry for some time. And I'd done various things that were sort of compliance related, but but I, I, I just hadn't you know, hadn't sort of focused too too much on it. And so uh, I was approached to join the the, the regulator and joined. And so then um, at the regulator, I spent most of my time looking at one firm, uh, which was UBS. And anybody who's in a regulated industry will know if a regulator is spending a ton of time looking at you, it's not because you're doing a stellar job. There were a range of different issues that that had occurred. And so I spent a lot of time looking at this one particular firm and got to know the people there really, really well. And when it came to leave the regulator, and, and the reason I left the regulator was I, the, the, the regulator got broken up and, and the bit I was with went to the central bank, so the Bank of England, I, the, the, the Federal Reserve equivalent for US listeners. And, and so I realized I wasn't cut out to be a central banker. I didn't, didn't see that as the rest of my career. And so I I went to the firm that I spent most of my time looking at. And one of the reasons I went to UBS was they had crashed the proverbial car on so many occasions, had so many issues that they were genuinely trying to do the right thing and trying to sort this thing out. And so I ended up in this very unusual position of eating my own regulatory cooking in the sense of I'd imposed a lot of stuff on the firm as the regulator. And a lot of issues had occurred in London. And so I was the the, the senior regulator that looked at that firm in, in London. And so I, I literally had sort of gone, we, we need to stop this from happening again. Let's impose this on the firm. And then I found myself responsible for the very things that I'd been imposing on the firm. <laughs> right, right. And I just, uh, and, and what was even worse was that the bit of the firm I was responsible for was the asset management business. And that was the one bit of the firm that really hadn't seen any, any regulatory action, as it were. Nothing had, had particularly gone wrong. And so there were things in other bits of the firm that had and therefore, a lot of the the, the rules and, and things that were imposed on the firm were didn't have in mind the bit that I was responsible for. Mm. And so this stuff was coming down, but I knew where it'd come from because I'd been the person helping to create it. And so as I'm stuck there in this is compliance and risk role within UBS, I'm trying to action stuff that I understand the logic of, but I'm just seeing the way it's landing. And I would get emails from myself inviting me, and, and they did, they called it an invitation to training, it was called. And, 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 and it would be invited to go to training. And I was like, I don't know what this is. What is this? Or I'd get a policy that I owned and I'd read this and I don't fully understand what this is. And I thought, if I don't get this, <laughs> right? Yeah. If I don't, if I, and I've got compliance in my job title it's coming from, then what, how is this going to impact people on the front line? Yeah. And so I had this, this sort of light bulb moment that we were in the business of influencing human decision-making. Like you can't say to an organization, be well, you can, but you won't get very far. You know, logos, legal entities, buildings, factories tend not to respond to being told to do things, right? It's people that we need to influence. And so as I started to try and square the circle, because I, you know, I got to a stage where I was old enough to, to sort of think, well, I, I could let this go, right? I could just go through the motions, but I was like, that doesn't feel right to me. And so I wanted to try and solve this problem. And so that's when, that's when behavioral science kind of presented itself, because I was just like, well, actually, if we're trying to influence people, we really need to think about not how we would like people to behave, but actually how they're likely to behave. What's the, what are the human beings at the end of this process? whose behavior we're trying to influence. If we can get on, you know, get to them in the in the right way, then we can make things happen. And so the realization I had was that I thought compliance was all about rules and regulations, which it is. But that is the organization's perspective on it. The organization needs to comply with these rules. That's the organizational challenge. But to get that solved, you've got to be thinking about things from the perspective of the people that are going to deliver or not deliver that mission. 
And so that's that was the, the, the realization I had. And once you start to think in those terms, you suddenly go, oh, a ton of things that we are doing, not, not because we're idiots or that we just haven't thought in those terms. And so the solutions we've come up with are logical solutions. They are to use behavior, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like a, a, a sort of system two logic, right? Let's think logically about how we approach this thing. And what we need to do is we need to come up with a system one thinking, to use Kahneman terminology, to get people to, to do this thing. And so once you start to think about the world in those terms, suddenly you recognize that many of the approaches that you might have adopted, and this wasn't a UBS-specific point, this is, this is financial services across the piece, but also other industries, you know, there's a logical approach being adopted to solve an emotional human problem. Yeah. So I want to go back. You said this in, in what you were just saying. You said realizing it's focused not on what we would like them to do, but what they are likely to do. And you mentioned prior to getting on the, you know, as we started recording, that when you looked at the Kindle of your book, that is the most highlighted part of the book. What is it in your mind? So what does that mean? If I'm sitting there thinking, all right, so we focus on what we like them to do. Well, yeah, I need them to do this. And you're mm -hmm. saying, no, what we, what they're likely to do. What, so help, help well, me understand that. What's the that. difference? Right. Well, so, so the logic is what we, what we deploy when we think about what, what we need to have people do within organizational situations. But you can, you can take this out and look at other scenarios where there is some form of theoretical authority over people. Uh, and we can, you know, we, can, we, 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 all, we all encounter situations where we are being told what to do. And the logic that gets deployed within organizations is something I call the employment contract fallacy, right? And, and that basically says that because we employ you, we can tell you what to do. Now, that is legally correct, right? We all sign employment contracts, and therefore our employers have rights over us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that is always going to work. And it'll work in situations where what you're doing is observable, but very often, it, particularly in the knowledge economy, we need people to do things where we can't observe every single thing that they're doing. We can't sit on their shoulders and police every single email that's about to go out. We can't sit in every single client meeting that they might have. We can't get, you know, the, and, and there are lots of times where we need them to be thinking and working with us. If we think about something like being ethical, you can say to someone, be ethical, but you try and codify that's quite hard. We need people to use their initiative. And they're only going to do that effectively if, if they're on board with what we want them to do. And so this idea of the employment contract fallacy is not to say that we, that we should just let employees do what they want. It's to say, let's recognize that if we're reliant on a contract, if the only reason we're, people are doing it is because we, we have the authority to tell them to do it, then we, the analogous situations is things like a car rental or, the, or those software things. You, you download a piece of software and you don't really have a choice. You know, Apple says, click here to accept the terms and conditions. I can't negotiate with them. I'm just going to, if I want to use the software, I just click and I, I move on. And so an employment situation is the same thing, right? If we say to people, you just need, you, you need to attest that you've complied with all the rules, which is something that many companies do, people are going to react in the same way. They're just going to go, I, to keep my job, I need to say yes to all these things. I need to pretend that I'm okay with this, even if I'm not. And so that's a challenge. You know, ditto car rental. You go and rent a thing. You, you, we all sign up. You know, we, I want to get the car. Uh, please sign here, sign here, sign here, sign. Do we ever read any of that stuff? Probably not. Right? And, and even if we did, we can't do anything about it. And so when we look at relationships between employer and employee as a contractual one, I, I have the right to tell you to do this. You know, we can use that. And there are situations where we're going to want to use that. But there's other situations where we have to recognize that people have feelings. And they're not always going to want to be told what to do. And so we have to recognize the situations in which it's going to be okay from an employee perspective to be told what to do. So uh, matters of uh, you know life and death 
Uh, food hygiene would be another good example where it's perfectly reasonable that the, the employer has strict rules about certain things. There are going to be other things where, you know, for example, if your employer says, well, you, you can't have a, a social media account because we're worried about what you might do. That's Im arguably impinging on your private life, even if that's something that legally they can do, it might start to feel awkward. And so my point is really to say, if we, we need to just think about, we know what we want to try and do, what we'd like it to happen. Let's just recognize those situations where employees might not be on the same page. And what can we then do about it? Well, you talked about uh, laptops and email as being a weapon of mass destruction. <laughs> you know, right. mean, we are empowering, we as uh, corporate leaders empower people to basically go out and they could really create a lot of chaos with those tools, but we can't live without them. So is it just kind of encouraging the best behavior and crossing our fingers and clicking our heels three times <laughs> and wishing for Kansas? Is How do we help people, how do we help corporate leaders make better decisions about these issues? So I think what we have to recognize is that, and, and I, I talk about Netflix because I think they've got a really nice distinction between recoverable and irrecoverable. And so they say there are certain things that you never, ever, ever, ever want to have happen. Things that would be embarrassing for the organization would take the organization down or are just conceptually you don't want, you know, bullying might fit in that. Huge financial losses would be another example. It's stuff you just don't want to have happen. And for those things, you know, you, you may choose to, to use very, very traditional techniques of, of really having very, very strict rules, policing tightly what happens. But they also say, well, there's a load of other things out there that are, you know, we rather they didn't happen, but they're recoverable, right? We can we can handle it if it happens. And we can manage that. So let's put less effort into the things that are recoverable and more effort into the things that are not recoverable. And so that requires us to have a balance and recognize that we can't stop every single bad thing from happening. So what we want to try and do is if we are going to burden people with rules, make them do lots of training, make them slavishly follow procedures, then let's do that as little as possible because it's not possible to get people 24-7 to be always following slavery. We get we get annoyed at some point when we have authorities that continually impose strict regimes on us. And so what I'm saying is not that we should we should just let employees do whatever they want, but just start to think through situations. There are going to be some situations where we need to do employees to do things that they are going to find unnatural and awkward and painful. Yeah. There are going to be other things that they that they won't have any issue with at all, right? No employee goes to work wanting to have an accident. So if there are things there where they understand why the rules exist and they recognize it's for their own protection then that's a much easier sell, for want of a better phrase, than something where they're going to go, this is a pain in the butt. Why do I have to do this? Yeah. And if we can start to recognize those things, then we then we can see the scale of the challenge that we have and say to ourselves, look, if this is something that they're naturally just going to accept, we don't have to worry too much about it. If it's something where we need this to happen and they're not going to be on board with this, then we can either try and persuade them to do it or we can recognize it poses a larger risk. But either way, it's using behavior intelligence around what you know the likelihood of, of of how people are going to perceive what we're trying to get them to do yeah so if you have a list of rules and that list just goes on and on and on all of a sudden they don't have the same impact that if you it's like all right these are the recoverable ones right these are the ones that are really important so let's make sure that we get people to focus like you know six rules is probably too much right so if i had six <laughs> rules probably too much and so you know you put six rules in, in your book here and so i imagine you know, that's six a is lot. about right so really, i think just i think six is about the right number no, <laughs> no, six is way too many I, I need one or two just give me uh, of those six rules well here we go you can talk about the six rules but then like you know come on what 
really one what 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 one or two of those what? roles are i really mean important. of yeah. the six isn't there one that only really one that just is is really important <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so so why so so you you you, you feel like this. so i put i put six rules in the book and the reason that the reason i put six rules in the book was i thought you can't have a book title humanizing rules right without having some in there yeah, yeah. and these aren't you know just because it would it'd be thematically odd and yeah. i i don't like to disappoint people who pick up the book and go where are the rules right i'm looking for rules in this. <laughs> where thing. are so my the, six human rules yeah, yeah. there you go so yeah. i put i put six in yeah. there and i think you know that they're, they're, they're not rules to be followed they're just sort of principles what i'm trying to do is get people to think slightly differently about the world. So, so I, I think my favorite one is just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? <laughs> which is which is really pithy, but it but it's 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 yep. a very important and it's and I lo- it's the final rule. And it's the final rule for two reasons because it's a little bit a little bit more complicated and it works on two levels. The first level, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Works on is is a message to employers and organizations, and that is to say to them, look, you have lots of legal rights over people. You could. Tell you, you could send your employees on lots of tedious training courses, impose lots of rules on them, right? Legally, you can do that. Practically, you can probably do that as well. But does that make sense, right? If I want people to, to do the right thing, overloading them with a ridiculous amount of training, that's, you know, doesn't necessarily make sense. And so often employers look at, focus on what are our legal rights here? And I would say, don't necessarily exercise all of those all of the time, right? Sometimes you are going to need to push that and really, but sometimes you don't want to do that. The second bit that the rule works on is looking at actually individuals and saying one of the things that we need to make people aware of, particularly where we're in an environment where it's difficult to codify. And if we look at what's going on in the world nowadays, we've got uh, technological trends, uh, you know, are moving new, new technologies coming along very, very rapidly. And therefore, some of the rules that we put in place for either older technologies or for the analog world may not work in the digital world. We've got people working in hybrid locations, working remotely. That again may shift that some of the things that we've put in place may not make sense in this new world. And so as we have employees that are sophisticated, that we're asking to do very smart things for us. Because bear in mind, nowadays, if we're hiring people, generally speaking, it's to do things machines can't, right? If 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 we could, if it's a repeat predictable task, then we can give it to machines. And whether that's whether that's uh, you know AI or whether that's physical robots. These things, they can do those things. What they can't do is things that involve creativity, emotional intelligence, nuance, and judgment. Those things that make us really human. When we are being human, we are at our best, but we're also at our most risky. That's when we can go and do crazy stuff. And so if we look at that world of of employment nowadays, and we say that people are going to be doing more and more things that are not repetitive tasks that you could give to machines, that will require them to use these skills of nuance, judgment, emotional intelligence, then we're going to have to give them a little bit, you know, we're not going to have to codify every single thing. We're going to have to get a little bit of trust there. And so message to employees as well is that don't just look at sets of rules and go, well, it says, you know, there's no rule that says I can't do this. That is a dangerous approach. And so just because you can doesn't mean you should also applies to employees to say, look, we need to recognize that not every single thing is going to be codifiable. Just because somebody hasn't written a rule that prevents you from doing that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And so we need to, and that's where the trust comes in. We need to equip. And so so I love this rule because it plays both ways. I'm, I'm saying both to employers and employees, look, there's, we, you both need to think in these terms. I do actually like your six rules. So I'm, I'm being yeah. a little facetious yes. when I'm saying that. And, and actually, the, the, so I was... Rule number five for you, right? So you, I'm, I'm, I'm like looking at the end here. If one person breaks a rule, you've got a people problem. If lots of people break a rule, you've got a rule problem. And I love that kind of looking at this because I think too often 
it, we we tend to go, it's always a people problem. And what this kind of points out is, hang on, if 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 you're doing something and it's getting broken all the time, let's 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 take a, a look at this and dig deeper. Is that it? Yeah, and it's it, the the, I, the way I like to think about this is is to say that w- what we often do is we say, oh my god, we've got a, a massive amount of rule breaking going on in in this particular scenario, and the logic that's always deployed is, well, it must be perfect rule, bad people. Right? Yeah. So 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 what we do is we will get we need to discipline. We ultimately we need to fire these people, and I just say, hold on a minute. The likelihood of having lots and lots of people deliberately setting out to break a rule is pretty minimal. Right. That's, it may happen, but it's very unlikely. And therefore, let's just think about what are the reasons that they might be doing it. And so it may well be that the rule is complicated, difficult to follow, not easily understood. You trained them on it eight years ago and have somehow expected them to remember what's <laughs> happening or, or the context in which they're being asked to, re- to do something isn't clear to them. And therefore, that's a behavioral clue that this isn't just about a bunch of people who've willfully decided to break the rules. There's something else going on. And we know that this is true because if you look at a, a, a sort of analogous situation, think about traffic. If we have a stretch of road where there is an accident black spot, right, we'd call it, where you'd say, okay, we need to look at this and say, why are lots of people having accidents here? They can't all be irresponsible drivers. And what we then do is we say, oh, we better do something about, you know, maybe it's a blind corner, it's a junction. We do something about that to change the nature of the road, to change the environment to stop accidents from happening. That doesn't mean that people aren't accountable for their own actions, but we recognize it in the road context. And we don't just say, well, let's just ban all these people from driving. Because if you do that, let's imagine you you stopped all of the people that broke your rules from doing whatever it is, getting involved in that particular activity. You could fire them all. If you don't solve the environmental issue, you just get a whole load more people and you're running the same risk. And so this is really about, you know, and the behavioral science behind this, the, you and your listeners will know this, right? So this is thinking about, well, oh, there are environmental factors that drive behavior. And so what I'm saying there is that lots of people doing something we don't want or not doing something we do want them to do gives us a behavioral, there is something going on that we can then start to look at. And if we just focus and say bad people that need reprogramming or firing, we just, we're not solving the problem at all. And so that, that for me is, a, it's a really obvious behavioral point, but it's never considered. And it's never considered one because it's, it's, it's sort of a little bit quirky and, and, and feels counterintuitive. It's also very inconvenient for organizations. Because then you have to start looking and going, well, what is it that we, you know, what's the contributory factors? What are we doing to make that happen? And maybe you have to look at your incentive program. Maybe you have to look at the clarity. Maybe you've, maybe the training you've given them is appalling. Maybe the system that you've asked them to use is there. And and that's going to take time and effort. So it's much easier to discipline the people, but you're not going to solve that problem. I love that. This is the point in in the show where having this very serious interview with Christian Hunt turns to talking about radar, but I'm not going to do that. I want to know what the hell is up with Mr. Logic. I mean, did I did I miss a whole chapter in the Encyclopedia of Cultural Relativism? But what is up with Mr. Logic? Yeah, there is a it's it's like a, it's like a comic basically. It's a, you, and and it was something that was it, when I, when I was at university several decades ago. Right, this was this was a, every, this was like a million selling, but it, and it was like a sort of small thing that somebody had started, and it was just kind of. And it's it's basically just lots of outrageous cartoon characters. So there's a there's like a if you imagine a ridiculous TV presenter who's who's incredibly sexist, incredibly rude, spends his whole time getting drunk and being inappropriate, and they were lampooning certain types of TV presenters that we would all have recognized from the 90s. 
And there are lots of characters there that are, from a behavioral science perspective, fascinating, but they're very funny because they reflect, you know, they're exaggerated versions of reality, as comedy often is. And so there's one character in this in this physical, and, and and Viz is still going, by the way, and it's my it's probably my best value subscription from a behavioral perspective because, <laughs> because I'm you know, it, it, it sort of points things out and you can and it, it points them out beautifully by being slightly silly and slightly excessive, but we spot that. Anyway, Mr. Logic, the joke around Mr. Logic is that he is entirely logical. And so he analyzes situations, he goes into situations and he analyzes them incredibly logically. Like, like the, spark would or data. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. even more extreme than that, right? He's 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 the sort of no, he's the sort of person you, he has no friends. You would not hang out with him whatsoever because he's just a pain in the backside. Has no emotional intelligence whatsoever, but it's just very very funny. And 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 I realized as I was sort of looking at the, at the why did I find this cartoon particularly funny? Well, well, his his excessively logical approach, right? So it's it's system two on overdrive, right? <laughs> and, and and inevitably, what happens is he gets beaten up, right? Because he finds himself in situations where where he's so socially awkward and weird, and of course uh, chooses people. You know, they they put him in situations where he engages with people who uh, you know are not very tolerant, shall we say, of, of of strange behavior. And so I I really like him as an example of sort of how to think about things because because you know the, the the Mr. Spock Homer Simpson thing's been overdone. Yeah, and so I was like looking for a character that I could sort of point towards that. That and one I wanted to introduce loads of people to Viz because I think it's just great for. It is hugely inappropriate. I will warn people. So some people, <laughs> if you're late, if you're easily offended, uh, then you probably shouldn't be listening to the show. But if you're easily ah. offended, not the nothing you want to listen to. But but Viz is is great, and and so it's it's available in it's available in the UK. But you can you can catch some. We can put links in the show notes to some of the the examples. But Mister Logic for me is just the the, the ultimate, and I love the name. Mr. Right, Logic. Just, it, Mr. It's Logic. Awesome. He's, he's, we, we discover, if you read enough of the cartoon, he's actually called Lawrence Logic, which I quite like as an alliteration, but but he's no, the cartoon is called Mr. Logic. And so it's just a really perfect illustration that if you push this idea that human beings are logical to an extremity, right, you have something that is so you know, inhumane and awful right. that, we, that we find it laughable and that we don't want to engage with them. And we would and never what, want to hire them. Right, right. And yeah... That's the logic that we deploy to try and influence human beings, right? It is lots of compliance programs and rules are written on the basis of Mr. You know, they're written by or for Mr. Logic. And so I find it quite funny to have, it's quite nice to have a, a sort of cartoonish character to point towards and go, that is what we don't want. Yeah. And therefore let's move miles away from that and start to think about whatever the opposite of Mr. Illogical or Miss Illogical or whatever <laughs> well, would be. But, but the, the, the opposite isn't necessarily Mr. Illogical or Miss Illogical. It's, it's Mr. or Mrs. Human, right? I right. mean, when you think about it, it that's what that comes yeah. down to is that we don't operate in that way. And I think there's been lots of research that says that, you know, Damasio did all that great work when people did, you know, have brain lesions and losing parts of that emotional component of our brain. We don't work well as human beings in those kinds of situations when we are purely rational beings. And so that being said, let's talk about humans. Um, let's talk about the framework human that you use in this. Help us understand. Uh, and again, what I love about um Actually, all of this stuff. The book is humanizing rules for you know the behavioral science to ethics and compliance. It's not about ethics and compliance. This is about the just being human. I, I would say that this is a much broader book than you know. Just if you're working outside of ethics and compliance, this is still really 
interesting stuff. And so help us understand a little bit about human. So I, th- I think that, you know, you're absolutely right, right? The, the, the premise, but the, the, basically I've, I've kind of talked a little bit about my journey and how I've come into this space, because I think it's, 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 it's interesting and useful for people to understand where I've come from. And so it, it's framed around compliance and ethics, because that's the space that I know. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's about any situation where you might need to influence other people in order to meet uh, certain standards or rules or pr- mitigate certain types of risks. So that might just be, you know, uh, I mean, parents can find this useful, right? Thinking about how do we influence our kids to do the things that we want them to do, want, do the things we want and not do the things that we don't. It can be just line managers in businesses, but how do we how do we influence people? So that so the compliance and ethics bit is you're right, it's a sort of gateway drug into this bigger question <laughs> of how do we how do we better influencing people? And and the humans framework is really around saying, look, how if we want people to do something or not to do something, then let's think about how what we are asking of them. And I, I use the phrase asking because it's a bit politer, but what I basically mean by that is telling them to do it. Um, let's think about how this is going to land. And so humans takes you through some of the characteristics, some of the attributes that we that we might want to think of. It's not, it's not intended to be exhaustive, but it's intended to say, here's some things that, that matter. So let's just take the H in humans is helpful. Right? And the question that that poses is, you know, is the person that we are forcing this onto, is that, are they going to find it helpful? And, and the key bit here is not to say, should they theoretically find this helpful, mm. but actually, is this helpful? So if I am giving them training that is going to potentially save their life, and, and they understand that, and we make that clear, we don't presume that that's what they think, but we have some inkling that, then, then we go, that's, that's, that's helpful. Thank you. That was useful information. If, on the other hand, we are asking them to do the equivalent of, you know, when you hit like a roadblock or something, you've got to drive 20 miles to get round because the, the one bridge over the river's blocked or something, but unhelpful. And so when we say to us, anytime we're asked to do something that's unhelpful, right? We will naturally not want to do it, right? There's less likelihood of us doing it. So if I take that in a compliance context, I would say, if we're analyzing a particular rule, a policy, a training program, and rules, again, is a proxy for any attempt, you know, an intervention that is attempting to influence people for the purposes of complying with their rules or achieving a particular outcome. Uh, if we say to ourselves, look, is, is this thing we're asking them to do helpful from their perspective, uh, we can start to say to ourselves, what risk does this particular thing pose? And if something is particularly helpful, then maybe we can put less emphasis on it, right? Because they will naturally, they'll, they'll, they're more likely to want to do it. If something is palpably unhelpful, then we go, that's interesting. That's an alarm bell for us because we would say to ourselves, well, actually, if they're going to find this unhelpful, I can do one of two things, right? And this is again where behavioral science comes in. I can either say to myself, well, maybe actually I can make it more helpful. Is there a way that I can make it actually, maybe what I'm asking to do is actually unhelpful. And so we don't need to do that. We've just done that historically for some reason, no need to do that. So let's make it more helpful from their perspective. Or we can bring in another piece of behavior science to say, if we can't change reality, let's change people's perception. Let's make them feel like it is more helpful. So that becomes a more communication persuasion exercise. And we know lots of interventions that we've seen in other contexts where we can try and make people feel differently about reality if we can't change the actual reality. And so uh, all of the, the components of the, of, of the framework, you know, you, you is understanding, right? So do people understand it? Not should they theoretically understand it, but do they actually understand what this involves? Because if we don't understand something, um, we're less likely to be able to do it. And particularly if there's a qualitative component to yeah. it, right? If, if the rule requires us to do it to a certain standard, if I don't know what I'm doing, there's, a, there's a less of a likelihood that I'm going to get it to the right, the right standard. And so that's saying, again, let's analyze it and say, 
do they understand this or not? What, what, do, what do we? And so maybe we can help them understand it, or maybe we can recognize it's going to be really hard for them to understand. We need to make more effort. Yeah, and what what I loved about this, uh, Christian, is it, it kind of caught me off guard. I was half expecting, I, I was to some degree expecting the humans to come from the perspective of the uh, corporate leader. And and you really turn the kaleidoscope around here and say, no, 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 let's think about this. What you talk about helpful, it's not helpful to the organization. It's helpful to the individual employees. It's helpful to the people who are actually doing the stuff. And the book is just littered with that approach. And I, and I just love that. What got you to that? I'm wondering what was the catalyst that got <laughs> you to that perspective? Well, it, it was it was literally this, this scenario. I was thinking, okay, so we are trying to get people to do something or not do something. And what is it that's going to drive that? And I just suddenly thought, we don't ever think about things from their perspective. We we rely on this employment contract fallacy of, yeah. well, I can just tell you yeah. to do this. And, and there's one thing that's, that's really interesting is the more important the organization perceives something to be, often they put less effort in because they go, well, this is obviously important. This is absolutely critical. And they, they and you know, mandatory training is a really good example, right? They have to come to this training, therefore we don't have to put any effort in. And I argue the opposite because I say, actually, if you're dragging someone kicking and screaming to something, <laughs> right, then you haven't got their attention. And so if you're just doing it for what I call theater, right, if you're just putting on a show, right, and, and you, you don't really care about whether they pay attention or not, you just want to be seen to be doing it, fine. But if you actually want them to pay attention, anytime you're, you're just foisting something on someone, it actually makes them less likely to pay attention. It makes them angry, right? Because no, we don't like being dragged... We've all done this where you get dragged to something. It's like listen to some boring lecture about something. Do a, do a stupid test to prove that you have, or you know, you've retained some sort of information that you were taught 20 seconds ago. Right? Pointless exercises. And we all know this and we can smell these things. And I just thought if we want to get through to people, then we need to start thinking about things, not from our perspective, but from their perspective. And the reason I think compliance and ethics is interesting is that the, the, those words come from the perspective of the organization. Here's an outcome, that an organizational outcome. But to get that organizational outcome, we have to think about the tools that, that we need to deploy are not on the organization. They're on the human beings within the organization. Mm. And it's their collective behavior that will determine whether or not we get there. And so, yeah, for me, it's really... And, and, and I look at this slightly, Tim, in, in, in the sense of if, if you think about what we the effort companies go to from a customer perspective, right? let's make our customer acquisition process easy. Let's make it simple for them. Let's look after our customers. Very often, employees are left behind in that. It's like, well, we employ them. We don't have to worry about that. And we ask employees to do things that we would never dream of asking a customer to do. Now, the relationship is different. And of course, there are different, you know, we, we sometimes are going to have to get employees to do things that, that perhaps they don't necessarily want to do. That there is a pain for them. And that's the nature of the employment. But I'm just saying, let's just try and analyze what's going on here. And then we can say to ourselves, can we do something about it or not? And if we can't do anything about it, then we just go, well, that poses a higher risk. Let's pay more attention to that. And we're thinking it through. And we don't then introduce rules that are unnecessarily antagonistic. And I talk a lot, uh, apologies for anyone offended by this, but I talk a lot about pissing people off. Right? And I think it's, and I use those terms deliberately because I'm not interested in something that's slightly annoying. I'm something, <laughs> yeah. something that's, you know, like something that's a slight annoyance. It's not a problem. But if something really pisses you off, that's what's the, the first rule that you're going to break or process you're going to circumvent when push comes to shove? The answer is that irritating thing you don't like. And so I'm saying, let's identify what those are and then we can start to see what we can do with that. And so you have to, to get to that point, it's not about what you think. It's not, and, and let's let's not forget the curse of knowledge here. Right? If I'm operating in a compliance, and we can add health and safety or cybersecurity or physical security or HR, anybody that's got processes they're imposing on other people, if you're spending all your time looking at this process, you understand why it's important, right? And particularly if it's a once a year thing, 
that you've spent the whole year putting together, right? You're steeped in this. You have the curse of knowledge. And yet the people coming in, you know, they're not in that same position. And if it's your job, you know, you'll care about it. They may not care at all. And so we just need to recognize that. Yeah. So I, I think I'm going to ask next the, the the second most important question of of this interview. And the, the first one is going to be the music question that Tim will follow up with that on. But the second most important question, what have you learned about compliance um, from sexologists? <laughs> So yeah, I you put I, it in the book. I, you wrote I, about I, it. I, oh, come on, here you go. So yeah, so I'm I'm always on the lookout for play, things that we can learn from. And so during lockdown and COVID, this is back in 2020, I saw something on social media that I just thought was fascinating. And it was basically this was at the time when mask wearing was being introduced. And this this lady called Jill. Um, who, whose Twitter handle was sexologist Jill, right? She put this tweet saying, it, it, you know, if you want to get people to wear masks, right, talk to a sexologist. And I'm like, this is interesting. And she, <laughs> and I thought it was slightly, you know, and I thought it was potentially slightly kinky reference. And she then went on to say, look, we have dealt with a similar issue where if you look at preventing the spread of HIV, how do you get people to wear condoms? And she analyzed the things that they had done to get people to wear condoms. For example, making condoms freely available, trying to make it socially acceptable, trying to give people scripts that they could use in the moment of intimacy to have that conversation. And so she was looking at all these situations, what are the drivers of that piece? And she said, we can do the same thing for mask wearing. I was like, oh, this is super smart, right? It's taking a behavioral intervention that we know has worked and saying there's a potential read across for how we might persuade people to wear masks, right? Because they're they're not the same thing, but they're comparable in the sense of, you know, wearing a condom is is disrupting a natural flow. Ditto, asking people to put a mask on is, and, you know, we can continue the analogy and go into the more detail, but it's, it's you know, it's it's blocking something normal from out and it feels unnatural. And so I, lo- I just went, this is really interesting. And I did what I've done on a few occasions. I've just gone, well, there's only one thing for it, right? She has to come on the podcast. And so I contacted her and said, I was really fascinated by by a thing because I thought what you said was very behaviorally smart, right? She she didn't have the language of behavioral science, but she, she understood it, and so it was it was kind of behavioral science in action, or, or as I call it, you know, compliance in the wild. And so I invited her onto my podcast. It was just like fascinating. And so she talked about what they'd done, and I then sort of did a little bit of the behavioral science behind the piece. And I think it's a great example. If it wouldn't occur if you were trying to solve the mask wearing thing, right? Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily let's call it a sex art, right? It's a ridiculous suggestion, and yeah. That I think is what is what we need to do, and so a lot of what I do with my clients, a lot of the work that I do is to say, let's can we find something where we are trying to solve the same problem in a different context? Not that we slavishly copy it, but we go, what can we learn from the way that they did that? And if you look at compliance exercises, there's a ton of stuff we can learn from transport authorities, from you know COVID, good and bad, by the way. It's not all just saying. Right. And we just say to ourselves, is there something that we that can inform what we do here? Because particularly if it's an intervention where people are putting money behind it, so advertising is the best example, then presumably they've done some research on on this thing, and we can see that you know there's a bit of there's probably some science behind it, some budget, some. And so that's a useful, really useful data point. And let's not reinvent the wheel. And let's say, is there something that we can learn from that? And so the sexologist, I, I you know, clearly it's a deliberately sort of clickbaity, outrageous thing, and, yes. and uh, like terrifying conversation for obvious reasons. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> but but just yeah. just like amazing. And I loved it because I just I learned so much. Um, and and the bit I loved was that she intuitively got it. Yeah. And that's the bit I want people to get to is to just say, look, actually, what we think is a really difficult challenge 
really serious challenge over here, maybe there's somewhere somewhere else where we can just take inspiration from it. And the moment you you walk out into the world and you start thinking in those terms, you know, that thing that really annoys me when I go to the train station or the bank or the supermarket, oh, if, are we doing the same thing in, 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 in a work context? Maybe that's not such a good idea because, you know, I have to make sure I'm, I'm representative. But if, we're, if stuff that pisses us off elsewhere is going to piss us off inside, inside a work environment, we don't just suddenly turn into people where we go, oh, those things I normally find entirely unacceptable are suddenly all entirely acceptable. We will have a degree of tolerance, but it's just a shift. And so I loved it as a, you know, it, yes, it is, it's, it's a headline grabbing thing, right? Because why would you pick in that context? But I think it's a brilliant example. I love the, and I, I want to get to the music question, but first have to just acknowledge this, this ability for humans to sort of see the behavioral science in the world without having the right names for it. We don't do this all the time. We're not necessarily <laughs> terribly good about it, but it happens, right? We, we can have the right intuitions, right? Yeah, totally. And, and you know, one of the things I find interesting is, is, is often we get, you, you, you'll get sort of people who starting out in behavioral science and apologies to any listeners that are doing this, but you get people sort of going, ah, I'll show you what, that's loss aversion, right? <laughs> right? You know, sort of just literally, it's behavior science by numbers and they'll spot something that's happening yep. and as if to go, we can isolate the effect of that versus a ton of other things, right? And and so it's, so I I don't, we don't need to have the vocabulary, you know, and, and this is where people like Rory Sutherland who tell stories about crazy things, you know, that are nothing to do with the subject in hand. It's very, very powerful because we can just, we can pick that up. And so we all on one level, we all understand stuff that's irritating. We all understand stuff that's tedious. We all understand stuff that feels over, you know, employer overreach. How dare they tell me to do that? That sort of emotion, that's a raw feeling around a behavioral science dynamic. And so if we can start to recognize that, we can use that in other contexts. I love that. Okay, so we have the six more pages of questions to ask you, but but we don't have time for all of those. So I do want to get to a music discussion that we had the last time you were a guest on the show, but we weren't able to actually share because of some technical issues. So, so you say, <laughs> so, dun, dun, dun. so don't call us out, Christian. Don't call us out. So Christian, you've been stranded on a desert Island. You've got a year and you only have two musical artists catalogs that you can take with you. What two artist catalogs are you going to carry on the Island with you? So, so the, the the first one, I think, it comes back to the wonderful time that, that we all had together at Abbey Road Studios last year, and and that's going to be the Beatles. Well and, done. And, I, and purely because, well, so one, I think it's thematically out, but say I'm I'm a huge fan of them because I I, I find the, the the just the breadth of what they do, and and I wouldn't quite go as far as saying like you find me an emotional, I'll find you a Beatles song for it, but but there, there is an element of that there. Yeah. And I just, I love it because I think it's, it's, you know, it, like I can, I can always find something that's going to cheer me up and, and, and take me in the moment. So you'd run the strands out just beyond the band as a band. You'd go McCartney solo stuff, Harrison solo stuff. I'm, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave wings behind if I may. Okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, and possibly the frog chorus. And on the um, run. There's, there's yeah. a few things that we might, okay. we might choose to sort of perhaps leave out of the, okay. the, the, the box of, of vinyl that we're taking with us. But yeah, I just, I just think that, I mean, what, like, talk about talented people. And I think it's, if you look at, and this is the other bit I love, look at the constraints that they were under at the time in terms of, you know, we didn't oh. have the, the technology that we have nowadays to be able to produce music. You know, th th there was just natural raw talent there and it, it just shone through. And I, we, and I, we got know. to see the eight channel desk that they used to record some of this stuff on that just blew me away to think, my God, I mean, this, we have 
literally unlimited channels to create right. try different trials. Oh, how about this sound? How about that sound? It, it create mixes that are super complicated that eight eight different sounds they could have at any given time. It's it was phenomenally. And the, uh, the other thing I love is that Disney Plus series. You know where you see them filming it and the the. The, the the really just human way that, you know, tunes just come from, and you watch McCartney composing some of the stuff, and it's just like, it's so, it's so the anti, it's it, it all, and I, I love it because I think there's a behavioral science piece here as well, right? It's, it's so natural and human. It comes, seemingly comes out of nowhere, right? This is not, a lot of music that we see in the charts nowadays, pre-programmed, yep. you know, highly commercialized. That was just like some guy strumming away and then stuff happens. And I, I can't think of a better kind of behavioral thing than that. And it, they're not the only ones, but it's just a really good example of it. Yeah. Okay. Number two. Second artist. I'm going to pick one that most of your listeners probably won't have heard of. Um, it's just a German artist. And I've, I'm in the process of moving from London to Munich. So I spend half my time in both cities. So I, I feel a German artist needs to be there. So it's a guy called Herbert Grönemeyer. Um, and he's a, he's a singer songwriter. And he writes some of the most wonderful music. And it's very, it's very engaged, very lyrically clever. But his the breadth again the breadth of his canon is fantastic, and he's he's got you know songs about love, but also lots of social comment. He's he comes from a place called Bochum, which is in it's a very industrial town in the north of Germany, and it's it's got a, it's got a football club, a soccer for American listeners. That's that's sort of you know, one one of these things that people passionately support. And he's written a song which they play every time there's a home game about his hometown of Bochum. And the beautiful thing is, it's not like a, a kind of, this is a wonderful place. He talks about the fact it's an industrial hole. It's not very glamorous. It's, it's basically a bit of a dump. And he's written this, this beautiful song. And, and so he's taken pride in his own environment. But he's just the, he's one of those artists, every time I go see him, produces a phenomenal live performance wow. and it just a super, super, super talented guy who- Can you, can you who, share a link with us? With, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's one of those ones where I would say, don't just listen to what he's done. He's done some albums in English, which I don't frankly recommend because uh, it doesn't, it just doesn't work. So, and there's another illustration. I think it's really interesting that, you know, things that work lyrically in one language, yeah. translating them and, and it's him doing the translations. So it's not on a bad, you know, he understands where it's coming from, but it's just not as good. But yeah, he he's just he's just one of those people where I just go and and I'm and, and I'm as I'm talking to you there's, a, there's the tickets are pinned to the wall behind me so I'm seeing him in a in a couple of months time in music I think it's my fourth or fifth time of seeing this guy so um in one, of the, one of the people I see uh, yeah absolutely yeah he's playing in the Olympic Stadium here so oh okay so he's not he's not a, a backyard band no 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 he's he's but this is what I think is fascinating about music right this is that's why I say it's bringing someone that your listeners probably will have never listened to before. Yeah. He's massive in the German-speaking world, and then occasionally comes over to New York and does something for the for the you know for the German the, the German American the yeah the, the German but, expats but, yeah, that by, are living here. By all here, rights, yeah. if he if he if he was singing in English, I'm pretty damn sure he'd be a world star. But he's not. He's in that in that German market, and it's you know love it. Christian Hunt, it's always a pleasure to to talk to you, and thanks for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure as ever. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Christian, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our very human and non-compliant brains. Perfectly set up. Yeah. Perfectly set up because that's that's what we are. That's what we humans do. We like to comply, but we like to not comply too. <laughs> 
how you like to not come. Well, actually, no, you like to comply more, right? You're, you're more of a complier than a non-complier, wouldn't you say uh, that? Probably. Well, it's domain specific. Oh, Let's put it that way. Domain yeah, yeah. Context matters. It does. Doesn't it feel like Christian should be here with us as we groove? Like, I mean, he's been like a partner on the journey with us. Well, you know, I think, I think maybe, here, well, here he is. You guys will be brilliant because you, you know, you're curious and quirky and all those things. <laughs> it's great. The, the the world of audio is pretty great. You Recorded know, audio. And, and the fact yeah. that hey, we're just we're we're brilliant and because we're curious and quirky, so he doesn't have to be a part of any more of this, right? So he, there you that's go. That's true. That's right. He said, he said it all. <laughs> he said it he all. Just, there you go. All right. Crazy. All right. So grooving, 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 grooving. What what did you take away? Outside of just how much fun it was talking about hula hats mm. and other things that <laughs> happened prior to people getting uh, before we start recording, but um, anyway, well, what did you take away from this? It's uh, come on. I mean, I, I'm working in a bank now, right? So <laughs> this idea of legal and risk and compliance. I was in a training today for it, and what is really great that that Christian does is remind us in big bold letters that employees are people. Mm-hmm. So we've got to we have to humanize the rules. I mean not to just get too dorky, stupid, but we have to humanize rules because if we don't, we're missing the fact that we're not managing robots. We you know, we're managing people. That that's my big takeaway on this. Yeah, I love how he frames this as Focus not on what we like them to do, but on what they are likely to do, right? Yeah. This idea yeah. of understanding, which is the why behavioral science is part of this. It's the understanding what people are likely to do, the inherent biases, the emotional elements that we have as humans and because we're not robots. And understanding that as we build out those rules that we have and any compliant components that we need. And, and I think Christian isn't saying that we don't have a need for rules and we don't have a need for penalties when some of these things are broken, but that in general, you know, we need to make sure that we're not doing uh, counterproductive rules and compliance measures. It reminds me a little bit of some of the work that has been done on uh, cheaters, mm. that there's a lot of people that cheat a little bit, a, a very small amount. And there's a very, very small number of people who cheat a lot. Mm-hmm. And and yet we kind of build rules and apply them universally as if everybody cheats a lot. And I think that Christian points this out that, you know, let's acknowledge that the average person, he, he said the average person is not showing up to work to try to get things wrong. They try to show up to work to get things right. So let's let's enable that. Yeah. You know, let's let let's enable that. Let's rely on the cooperation uh, of people. Let's build you know psychologically safe environments. Right. Let's let's have places uh, where people can come to work and do their best. Well, and what I love is this idea that you just talked about. Right. We we try to stop the big cheaters when those are really little. And yeah, maybe we. You know, we we don't want to focus the rules and compliance on the bad people because, yeah, the average person is showing up. They want to do a good job. They want to get things right. They want to do right by the company and society and themselves. But we put these rules in place that say, hey, we don't trust you, that we think you aren't smart enough to be able to do this. And as he talked about, 
you know, when you do that, you send a signal to the good people yeah. that you don't trust them. And then, as he says, naturally, they will respond in kind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what uh, what struck you in this, uh, in our conversation with, with Christian, that you wanted to groove on? Yeah, well, I loved the part that you just brought up. I thought that was really great. I think one of the things that he talked about that I thought was, it hit me because it kind of plays into some of the things that I do in, you know, the work I do with companies around incentives is he talked about this employee contract fallacy, right? Mm, Because we mm -hmm. employ you, we can tell you what to do. And he talks about how it's legally true, but it doesn't always work, right? That we can't rely on the contract. So we put a contract in place and therefore everything in this contract is going to be followed through to the T and, you know, all the I's dotted and T's crossed, et cetera. And It's interesting because oftentimes I see this when we're working with incentive compensation and sales incentives in particular. And the, you know, the company will put out an incentive compensation plan. It's a 20 page legalist document that talks about here's how you earn your incentives. Here's, here's the measures we're using. Here's all the terms and conditions about when you will get paid, when you won't get paid, all the things that happen, all this stuff, other factors. And then they have you sign it and they go, the the plan's communicated. So now people should act in the way that we want them to act. And which you see over and over again, right? Pretty much that. that, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is just one of these things. And as he was talking about that, I was just going back to lots of these where I'm going, do we not understand that salespeople are human too? And that they, A, first off, they actually going to read it. And if they do read it, are they not going to sign it? This is a paycheck for them. This is their bonus. And if they don't sign it, they won't get that paycheck or they'll have to go to court and do all sorts of different elements that this is going to be a significant hurdle for them. Therefore, they might even disagree with it or they might not read it and they'll still sign it because there's the the payoff on the back end. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be compliant with what we're trying to get them to do. doesn't mean that they're going to understand what it is that we need them to do. And too often, I think we fall on this employee contract fallacy and this idea that we can just depend on you know people to read the fine print to understand these situations and not take into account that it's not how we work as humans typically. Yeah, agreed. You know, there was one other thing that... Uh, that struck me, and this was after our conversation, but it was uh, dating all the way back to an earlier episode we did with Francesca Gino about her book about the rebel uh, innovation kind of approach and how it requires rule breakers mm. to to innovate oftentimes. And um, in reflecting on that, I just I just want to say that you know in some ways Christian's model, which is very human based, humanistic. Really, it allows for some rule breaking. It allows for a healthy environment where people can make mistakes. And uh, of course, he absolutely emphasizes the ability for people to make mistakes, but then also to actually say, hey, what if we tried this? Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really cool space to be in. That's a really great place for corporate cultures to strive for. Rather than just, look, I, I can't reach that far because the rules don't allow me to do that. Well, and that the penalties for breaking rules. And again, <laughs> yeah, Francesco right. isn't talking about being unsafe or doing things along that line, but more of no. social norms and the way the company typically does business and various different things, not being illegal or anything along those lines. 
Yeah, and no, that, no. I think, is exactly as you said, the way that Christian wants to reinvent this is to say, we need to have people doing that, and that should be promoted as opposed to penalized and that we're humans. And so therefore that's there. So absolutely. All right. So I think we can probably wrap this up. What do you say? Well, we could talk for hours about Christian because we adore him. Well, but, or, or we could uh, just make fun of him. Uh, <laughs> we could do that as well. I, no, in reality, but, I do want to just say thanks for Christian for coming on the show again, oh. four times. Uh, he's in the top. He's in the top there. So, yeah. Yeah. And and aside from the recordings that we've done with Christian, we are regularly in touch with him talking about all things behavioral science. We are really deeply grateful and pleased to call him a friend. Yeah. And we do really love that aspect. So, so we hope our listeners will take some of this message, humanize some of the rules that, and that, you know, that they go and put them into their daily lives. They put them into their work, regardless of what they're doing. And it helps them this week to go out and find their groove. Mm-hmm.